Welcome to Fun is Fundamental. Fun is Fundamental is a podcast for those who realize that the enjoyment of life is about having something deep in our souls which lights our fire. It's for those who maybe have lost that fire and feel like they are missing out on the pleasures of life. In each episode, I will share recent fun activities and focus on why having fun is essential for good health. I'm your host, Alenia, and I invite you to take this journey with me and join the pleasure-seeking movement. Hi, welcome to Fun is Fundamental, and today my guest is Dr. Aaron Ahuvia. He is a professor of marketing and research psychologist who has been ranked the 22nd in the world for research impact in consumer behavior and is ranked in the top 2% of all scientists in the world across all disciplines by Stanford University study. Dr. Ahuvia is the world's leading expert on brand love. He has a new book out called The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. In this episode, we talk about how fun plays into the things that we love and what makes things fun. I hope that you enjoy this episode and hearing what Dr. Ahuvia has to say. Good afternoon, Professor Ahuvia. How are you doing today? Really good. Nice to see you. <laughs> nice to see you too. So you wrote a book called The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. What was What made you have this idea that you wanted to write this book, first of all? Yeah, so this is something I've been at for a long time. Um, it the whole thing started kind of on accident some years ago. Uh, I was in the PhD program. This was many years ago. I was getting my PhD in marketing at Northwestern. And uh, one of my professors was explaining how like marketing was everything. Even when you were dating, you were marketing yourself to somebody else. And I thought this was really interesting and asked if I could write my term paper on that because, you know, dating was, I was single. Dating was way more interesting than like selling soap or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and he connected me with uh, Professor Mara Edelman, who had some data on a dating service. And together, she and I wrote a whole bunch of papers and became, so uh, we became for a time, the world's leading experts on dating services, which I can say with confidence because we were the only experts on dating services and therefore <laughs> didn't have much competition. And uh, I knew though that I needed to do something that felt a little more mainstream in terms of marketing uh, if I wanted to get a decent job in the world. So I thought, well, I've just spent two years really studying the psychology of love and attraction in order to do all this work on dating what you know how can i take this and use it and i thought well people love objects they like products they love brands you know what what if i study that so that's how i started looking at this and and a little while later we coined the term brand love to describe this phenomenon when people love products or brands it's become a really big thing at the time i started doing this work no one else was actually looking at it quite this way. I mean, a lot of people were working at similar issues, but no one was specifically saying, well, let's take the psychology of love from our love of people and see what it says about our feelings about objects. But now if you put brand love into 
Google Scholar, you'll get over 14,000 different papers written by scientists around the world on this topic. So it's kind of taken off and uh, it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. So I've been doing this for quite a few years and I wanted to write a book that would translate all this academic research for a more popular audience. So how how long about have you been have you been studying brand love? 30 years. Oh wow, okay. So things have more, definitely changed more. a lot in that time period. More than 30 years. So yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes. The huge difference I than it was that long ago, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean after things like Apple got really big, I'm sure it's like, oh yeah, people everyone recognizes and Apple is serious about this. Apple is the most loved brand, but it's not just that way by accident. Apple actually very intentionally looks at brand love and how they can create brand love for their products through their advertising and through the products themselves and thinks about it very consciously and works very hard on it. And that's part of the reason they've been successful at it. Chapter, chapter seven is specifically about fun, uh, it's enjoyment and flow. What does fun have to do with the things that we love? So we, uh, everything that people love for the most part is something that gives them some sort of pleasure. There's a lot of products or objects that we use simply as tools and they are a means to an end. We don't really enjoy using them. Like nobody enjoys life insurance uh, I had to, uh, some time ago, get the roof on my house replaced. It cost like $10,000. And there was zero enjoyment involved in the whole thing. It's like, I didn't like the new roof any better. I didn't feel good about it. It was no fun at all. Mm -hmm. So a lot of things we do um, are just, you know, instrumental in that way. There is a saying that people talk about in romantic love, in dating situations. They say, does he or she love the other person or are they just using them? Uh -huh. And you have the same kind of thing when people are loving objects. Uh, if, they, if they just use it, if it's just a means to an end like a tool, then they don't love it. In order to love it, they have to get what's called some sort of intrinsic enjoyment out of it, which simply means they like the action of using it. The process of using it is pleasurable or fun. So if there's no pleasure and no fun in something for people, there's also no love in that. So it's very connected in that way. When I was reading it, it kind of reminded me of like the idea of like the spark joy thing. That was the KonMari, you know, method. Oh, Marie like Kondo. Marie Kondo. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Kondo, yeah. Yeah, of like the things that you if but the, like she has this thing like being like, yeah, you might not love your uh, can opener, but it obviously you you use it and it it has purpose, you know, kind of thing. You don't. So there are things that you don't don't spark joy, but they serve their purpose and therefore it's yeah. it's OK if they don't spark joy. <laughs> and sparking joy is really related to loving something. And her work is very good and comes at things sort of, she just sort of 
figured this out in a very different direction from the way I did. So she comes out of a tradition, which is a Japanese religion, which is animist. Many older religions are animist, which means that they believe that everything has a spirit. So the tree has a spirit, the mountain has a spirit. Um, and in this view, objects do too. That spoon is alive and has a spirit. Everything has a spirit in that way. And so you should relate to everything sort of in an anthropomorphic way as if it was a person. That turns out to be one of the, the fundamental criteria for love. You don't, it doesn't have to be anthropomorphic, but there's different ways that your brain categorizes things as honorary people. So your brain thinks about people in a, in a certain way and it thinks about objects in a different way, except occasionally it'll promote an object to the status of honorary person. And <laughs> then, you know, for, then for that object, uh, it thinks about it in some of the same ways it thinks about a person. And one of the ways it makes that promotion is if uh, the object kind of looks like a person. So if a child relates to a teddy bear, their brain is treating that teddy bear as if it was a, a human being. And that's why they love that teddy bear. And there's a lot of other situations in which we relate to things like our pets. Um, you know, I don't know about you. I've got dogs. Uh, do you have any pets? My roommate has a dog. And so I obviously spend time with this this dog. <laughs> you have a, a dog by extension. Yes, like, yes. It's a dog-in-law. <laughs> Or something like yeah, that. Yeah, kind of like that, yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know. Do you talk to your dog? Or this dog that you live with? Oh, yeah. I do talk to him, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I talk. I got two dogs. I talk to them. And I don't just say things that they might understand, like dinner time or walk or something like that, which they clearly understand what those mean. Mm -hmm. But I love the in-depth conversations that they obviously have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> Uh, yeah. The reason I'm doing that is because my brain, even though consciously I know they don't understand what I'm saying, unconsciously, my brain is still categorizing them as human beings, and it's creating behaviors like talking to them that are appropriate for people, uh, you know, even though at a different, more conscious level, that's ridiculous. But I, that that's kind of how we deal with dogs and part of the reason our cats and, you know, part of the reason we like them so much is because mm -hmm. our brain treats them as, as people. And uh, that's part of our love for them. And we really love dogs and cats and other pets. Yeah. Uh, and it's but your brain does the same thing. It treats other things as honorary people as well. Um, one of the ways it does that, is, as I said, if it's anthropomorphic, if it looks like it, a lot of times we love things that don't look like a person. And so our brain is still treating them as an honorary person, but it's doing it for other reasons. So one of the other reasons that's very common, much more common than something that's sort of looking like a person or being an android or whatever, uh, much more common is that we associate it with a person. It's connected to a person. And so when we think about the object, we also think about the person, and that sort of tricks our brain into treating the object like a person. So that's the second big way. And then the third big way is that it becomes part of our own identity. We come to see ourselves. And of course, since we think about ourselves as a person, it's part of us. We think about it as, as human at some non-conscious level uh, as well. So 
I forgot what the original question hall at the beginning of this was, but that's yeah, I that's don't the basic structure that. of things. <laughs> that's the basic structure of things, and we'll probably get back to whatever whatever the original question was. Yeah, well, I, I I had just I had uh, mentioned Marie Kondo, I guess, oh, but Kondo. I but I don't remember Thank like what brought us there. <laughs> no, no, no. Thank you, but Marie Kondo. Thank you for reminding me where we were. Yes, so. Everything you love, it's because your brain at a non-conscious level is treating it as a person in some way, shape, or form. Marie Kondo's whole thing is consciously, she thinks they're all people. That's her religious background. And so when people uh, talk to her, they think, oh, she's just this strange, quaint metaphor she uses or these strange, quaint behaviors. But they're not strange, quaint behaviors. That's her religious system and what she, you know, the way she believes things work. But what's nice about that is that not every problem we have, but there's a certain type of problem that we have that arises from thinking about things as if they were people. So hoarders are people who think about a lot of things as if they're people. And hoarders have a hard time getting rid of things because love is at its core a motivational system that tells you don't get rid of this. So if you think about it, like suppose you had an alarm clock and you didn't program it to do this, but at some point like three, two o'clock in the morning, midnight, it would just go off at random and wake you up, right? It would not take very many times of it doing that before you threw it away and you, you got rid of that thing. Mm -hmm. If you've got a small child, they're going to wake up all the time and like wake you up too. You need evolution has given us a motivational system that says, if it's an alarm clock, you can get rid of it. But if it's your child, you can't just throw it away and get rid of it just because it's keeping you up at night. Yeah. So love is exactly that motivational system that evolved, not just in people, but in animals to say, this is your child. You, when, it's, when it's upset in the middle of the night, you're supposed to comfort it. You're not supposed to like throw it away. So uh, with that in mind, if your brain has a neurological malfunction, it keeps thinking like these old moldy newspapers are people, again, at a non-conscious level. The same reason we're talking to our dogs, even though we know they can't understand us, right? It's going to say, don't get rid of this thing. Um, and then the, the hoarders come along and you ask them, why don't you get rid of it? And they don't know, they can't tell you. So they do what every consumer does in a market research study when they don't know the answer to the question. They make some, and then they just tell you that. Um, and they seem convinced of it. And so they'll say, oh, I can't throw away that newspaper because someone might need it someday. But no, there's newspapers in the library if anyone ever really needs that. And, and no one's gonna ever need that. And it's, it's absurd, but they just gotta make up something. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's what they're they're coming up with. So how do you help someone? Because we all have that. We're not we're not hoarders, but we do have a little bit of that. Unfortunately, if you're a hoarder, it's just like a really bad thing. If you're a normal person, it's really not that bad a thing. It's just a little quirk, right? But we we fall in love with things like an old teapot, like and maybe it's broken. Like I've got this teapot, and I'm not sorry I do this at all, but it was made by a friend of me, it was a gift. A friend of mine, I should say, it was a gift. Um, I think it's very beautiful. 
it broke. Um, it got a crack. It cannot be used for tea anymore. But I wasn't going to get rid of that thing. I was quite emotionally attached to that thing. So I keep it. It's on display. It's now a, a, a visual art piece in my house. Hmm. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to get rid of it. But sometimes you really should. Like the teapot works. Fortunately for me, it works as a display item. It's all good. But let's say it wasn't very attractive looking. <laughs> I really ought to get rid of the damn thing. Um, what do I do? Well, if you try and rational yourself out of it, it can be just really painful. But if what Marie Kondo's figured out is that if the problem is you th your brain thinks it's a person. So what you need to do is you need to say goodbye to it. You need to explain to it that it's going to be in a better place, that it's not happy in your home because you're not using it properly. It's going to go somewhere where someone will really appreciate it and where it will get used and where it will be a happy teapot, right? And then you feel better about it and then you can get rid of it. So her stuff's really good that way, even though it's it's kind of funny. It just coincidentally works, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, I definitely, yeah, have had, like, times in my life where I just, like, hold on to things. And I'm just like, I need to get rid of this. And so, like, yeah, having that, like, kind of being, like, you know, that thanking it and saying goodbye to it kind of thing, you know, it, yeah. it did help. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. It helps. Yeah. And, the, and the taking a picture of it also helps. I like yes. that. You take a picture yes. of it like you have the picture. Mm -hmm. I will remember you. Goodbye. I will remember you. <laughs> I'm not abandoning you and you're not leaving me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Also, in, in the chapter, you start off with talking about the different process, like flow, like not where am I going? Like where you start off with like the simple pleasures of life and then you right. you're, you start growing your taste and then you get stagnant. So I work with people with dementia. Oh. And so like now working with people with dementia, I'm like, okay, what are the things that people, we all need to do to, you know, avoid, avoid dementia. And you yes. talk about like challenging your stagnant tastes and like, you know, always doing the same thing and like that, mm -hmm. things like that and like challenging that. So what are some things that people can do to continue to stimulate their growth in their tastes as they get older? Yeah. So uh, really great question because almost everyone, not everyone, but almost everyone I talk to is convinced that whatever music happened to be popular when they were between the ages of like 16 and 25, is the best move music that was ever written. And it doesn't matter how old they are. You know, that's what they think the best music was. Um, and there's actually a biological reason for this, which is that your brain kind of settles on stuff at, at a certain period. Um, and then it, it, there, there are some neurological changes in your brain. It gets a little bit harder. It's not impossible. But it's a little bit harder after that to acquire new tastes. So your food taste, there was a really interesting research on this with sushi. Sushi sort of spread across America at a, a certain point in our history. And people who were under 30 years old when sushi became popular adopted it and really loved sushi. And people who were over 30 years old when sushi became popular are still grossed out that it's raw fish. I'm never eating that, right? And, yeah. they, <laughs> oh, uh, and it has to do with just, you know, what your whether your brain was receptive to this new thing at that time. Now, as you were saying, um, when it comes to your mental faculties, it's use it or lose it. And there's a lot of ways that you can keep 
your brain active as you get older, doing puzzles, taking classes, all kinds of stuff. But one way is to just challenge this idea that, you know, your tastes are fixed because they're not. And, and one of the important things, and let's just go with music because I know a lot about that, <laughs> like music, but yeah. uh, there's this idea that we have that, well, the music that I like, I just like that naturally because it just was the best music and it just happened to, you know, to fit with me. And I didn't have to learn to like that music. You know, why should I listen to music now that I have to learn to like? Uh, and the, the answer is, no, you did learn to like that other music. You just didn't remember it. Well, your friends were playing this music. You would hear a song. You wouldn't really like it that much the first time you heard it. But you would hear it again because your friends would be playing it or it was on the radio or you couldn't escape it for some other reason or it was the theme song to a television show and it would just play around you. And as a result, you came to learn to like both new particular songs but also new kinds of music. Um, and all you need to do to continue learning to like new kinds of music or whatever it might be okay. is just A, expose yourself to it. So just listen to it. And then listen to it repeatedly. Um, so you're not going to like it the first time. It's going to grow on you over time. But you have to let it grow on you. You have to say, I'm going to listen to this, even though I don't like it the first couple of times. Pick something that is moderately uncomfortable for you. So don't pick music that you really hate. Because while you could learn to like that, it's a very heavy lift. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of time. And you don't need to punish yourself that much. I mean, so don't, don't pick music that you hate. Um, no, music. no Norwegian death metal, you mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just, you know, don't do that to yourself. You don't have to do that. But pick something that's just a little bit out of your comfort zone, that's not, not super different from what you listen to, but it's a little enough different that you're not really into it, and you're not really comfortable Pick stuff that other people who like that genre of music think is really good because that's going to be much more enjoyable when you get into it. And I will say this in general, like if you think about movies, most people, I would say everyone, but 90% of the people will like the best example of any genre. So even if you don't like science fiction in general, you'll like the best science fiction. If you're not a rom-com fan, you'll like the very best rom-coms that there are out there. Genre fans are people who like the best and the second best and the third best and the fourth best, right? Because they like, you know, I'm a science fiction fan, so I even like the bad science fiction or whatever it might. I'm a murder mystery fan. I, I read the crappy murder mysteries. But even if you're not a fan of some genre, you can still really enjoy like the very best things in that genre. And similarly, if you want to learn some new music, you know, pick the stuff that the people who listen to that think is the very best. And then listen to it repeatedly. Uh, maybe before you go to, you know, as your, as your commute, you know, say, I'm going to listen to a couple songs, you know, every time when I start my commute. And then I can watch, listen to something else. But I'm going to go through these three songs. Uh -huh. And when you listen to it, ask yourself, What's good about this music? The people who like it, what do they like about this? And in the beginning, you, this will be a little hard, but as you go on, it won't be hard to answer those questions. It'll become obvious to you. One last trick, at least with music, but it may, 
imagine that you're playing the music. Put yourself in the position, like have a fantasy of singing the song or playing that guitar solo or whatever it might be. That also helps a lot. I've noticed that people um, are like tend to like music that features instruments that they play. If you if you play piano, you're gonna like to listen to piano. And I think part of the reason is you just it's much easier to imagine yourself as the person playing it. So if you wanna, you know, if you're not interested in football and you want to learn to like football, you know, kind of imagine that you were one of the players. Make imagine that you're the quarterback, right? And in what you're doing. And that'll help you get into it a little too. Oh, thank you. How about we uh, talk about flow a little bit? So you had like this like idea that flow is where skill and challenge meet. Is that is exactly. it, that's correct? Yeah. Yeah. So this comes, uh, the original work on this was done by a now famous psychologist named Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. And his basic model works very well. He calls it the flow model. And he used it to explain what he called peak experiences, which are these just like these amazing, great experiences that happen very rarely in your life. You, it, what's nice about it is actually, it, it does explain those peak experiences. It also explains just everyday normal fun that we have all the time. Okay. So if you think about a video game, video games are super popular. They are now a larger industry than the movie industry and the music industry combined. So they are an enormous industry. They grew very quickly. And the reason they became so popular is because they are flow machines. They are just designed to produce this experience. So if you think about video games, it's really easy to understand how this works. So every video game presents you with a challenge. Um, if it's a first person shooter, you gotta shoot the monster. If it's a sports game, you gotta like have dunk the basketball or solve the puzzle or whatever the heck the challenge is. But there's always some sort of very clear goal. And the goal is has obstacles. It's not super easy. And all you're doing is meeting this challenge over and over again. But what makes it fun is that the challenge is not too difficult and not too easy. If it's too difficult, we've all had this experience in some games or other kinds of experiences, you're trying to achieve some goal, it's just too hard, and you try and you fail, and you try and you fail, and you're just never getting anywhere. You get really angry and frustrated. It's not fun, nobody likes that. Uh -huh. On the other hand, we've also had this experience where it's too easy, and then it's just totally boring. So what is the interesting, engaging thing is if you really focus and concentrate and you give it your all, then you can just do it. And what the pleasure actually is, is it's the experience of that focused concentration. So what makes it fun, what makes most fun fun is that you focus your concentration on something and you're really engaged in that. And as just an aside, people who study mindfulness meditation, they learn to make a lot of their daily activities more fun because they learn to focus their concentration on something, like what they're doing at that moment and get engaged in it. And, and what games do is games set up an artificial situation that helps you focus your concentration on some task and get really engaged in it. 
so then with a video game, as you get better at any, you know, this game, what the game does is it gets harder. And that's what makes video games so compelling is they're able to keep you right on the edge at all times where the video, you know, you're always just able or almost able. So you start off at a certain level and you fail and it's not fun, but you get a little bit better. And as you get better, you get rewards. Your brain gives you rewards for making progress. And then you get to the point where you can succeed and you're really happy because you've achieved your goal. And then, bing, there's a new one and it's a little bit harder. And so it keeps you in that perfect state all the time. Whereas a lot of other activities don't have that flexibility of, of making things easier or harder. And so you can get stuck either where it's too hard and you're just getting frustrated or it's too easy and you're bored. Mm -hmm. But that's, but if you look, we could talk about other things and maybe we should, that's sort of interesting is like you can say, okay, that's really clear to me how that works with a video game. But does it work with food? Does it work with music? Does it work with television shows? Does it work with movies? And mm -hmm. the answer is if you think about it, yes, it does. So what are some things that obviously, like, if something's too challenging, more exposure to it would make it less challenging, right? Partly. Yes. But is right. there other things that we could do to make something le too, uh, that's too challenging that we're getting frustrated by uh, into something that we could enjoy more? Yeah, that's right. So, so what you want to do, like, let's think about just a bunch of common examples, because it goes way beyond video games. So certain movies, like art house movies, I find them really boring. The reason I find them really boring is that they're too challenging for me. Uh, that the pleasure in a lot of those movies requires you to, to know all kinds of things about other movies and all sorts of things about film theory. I don't know any of that crap. Um, and so I just find them incredibly tedious and, and, and don't like them. Um, whereas other movies uh, that are like kids' movies, I find incredibly boring because the challenges they present are too easy for me. So mm -hmm. I got to find the right movie where the, where it's sort of a fit with this, right? Mm -hmm. and, and similarly with um, music, some music is really challenging. I mean, there's some bebop jazz. I like it somewhat, but really it still is just a little too hard for me a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's other music, you know, that I find really repetitive and boring. It's too easy for me. And so, again, you got to find that right sort of that right fit for you. Um, and it could be an activity like skiing, right, where you go on a slope. It's too hard. You're just falling and hurting yourself constantly. Or it's too easy and you're not challenging it. It's boring. Mm -hmm. So in all those situations, if you've got something that's too hard, um, there's two routes you can take. One route is to try and make it easier. Right? And I, I'm not quite sure, you know, it depends on the situation, but there may be ways that you can sort of reduce the challenges a little bit or shift the challenges. Like if you're at a ski resort, get off the black diamond slope if that's too hard <laughs> for you, right? And just find something that you're going to enjoy more. So to make it easier, or you can do things to make your to increase your skills to make yourself better at that activity. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, lessons and practice can do that, but other kinds of things can do that. So here's a crazy one. 
uh, if you you have a certain number of sort of amount of mental resources, and if you're distracted, you can't concentrate, and therefore things get um, you can't handle things that are as challenging. So if you are watching a movie and it's really going over your head, put away your freaking phone and pay attention <laughs> to the movie. Right? <laughs> and you may find all of a sudden that it's not so, that it's more interesting because you're paying more attention to it. With food and wine, um, if there's also a lot of challenges in sort of discerning the very subtle flavors there. And you can do that. You may notice that wine people, when they taste wine, they will often close their eyes. And the reason they're closing their eyes, music people do this when they listen too, is that the mental resources that their brain automatically puts into processing the visual information that's coming in, the, the brain doesn't need to do that. and can reallocate that and put that into understanding the, the taste or the sound that they're hearing. And what I found that, that is cool, that looks a little weird, but really works. If you were tasting like wine, you really want to do it. Not only do you close your eyes, but actually take, like put your hand over your, your eyes when they're closed. Because when your eyelids are closed, there's still some light coming through. Uh -huh. And that light is still hitting your retina and it's still causing your brain to process that. If you put your hand over your eyes and no light comes through, then you get more brain power to put on the taste and you can actually taste things better. Hmm. And that will help you um, up, step up your skill level a little bit and, and enjoy something that's complicated a little more. Mm -hmm. What about like the things that are, are too boring? Like how can we, I, I know you talk about complexity, talk, you just talked about subtlety, the intensity of the stimulation and, and then obviously a specialized knowledge with wine sometimes that makes yeah. things more interesting too but um Would you are... go through those four for just a second and explain those because mm -hmm. sure. i think for the, the listeners there's underneath like the the question then is like well what makes something more or less challenging why are something you know if it's yeah. a ski slope it's really obvious like why this ski slope is really steep and it's full of bumps why that's going to be hard and yeah. this not so steep ski slope is going to be easy but for other things like a movie why is one movie more challenging than another movie or a glass of wine why is a glass of it just doesn't even at first seem to make sense mm -hmm. but there are four different things, and this is something that I've sort of pulled together that's a little past what Chicks and Mahai was doing. There's four things that really, I found, make something more or less challenging. So mm -hmm. one is how complicated it is, and that's pretty easy to understand. Um, and for music, that kind of means like how many different instruments are playing at the same time and do, playing different things. It's sort of like just complicated. Or if it's a glass of wine, how many different flavors are happening at the same time? Um, or if it's a movie plot, like how many different plot lines are going? And is it all in chronological order or are there flashbacks? And all of a sudden you've got to like, wait, was this scene before? occurring before the other one or after the other one you've got to put it all rearrange the time order like all that kind of thing makes it more challenging so that's uh, complexity uh subtlety is like 
how carefully do you have to catch the, the nuances of something? So a lot of times if it's a like a an fancy art house movie, the characters' facial expressions will be very underplayed. And you've really got to pay attention to what's going on to like figure out what are they really feeling and that's what they're saying, but what do they really mean? And you really have to detect that kind of nuance. Whereas in a more popular movie, people express themselves more evocatively, right? And even if you're not really paying attention, you're really paying attention to your popcorn, you can still figure out what's going on or what they're feeling or what they're saying. It's like more obvious. Mm-hmm. So subtlety is one of these things that, that makes things uh, more challenging. So we've got the complexity, subtlety, the intensity of stimulation, which is funny because it's kind of the opposite of subtlety. So subtlety is being able to like taste the difference between two flavors in food that are to each other, but a teeny bit different, right? Can you taste the difference? Um, Mm -hmm. Intensity is like a food that's really strongly flavored. And in general, as people get more experience with things, they like things that are more intense. So people who eat spicy food as they like more, they like spicier food. And a lot of people watch movies, you know, as you watch them more and you get more into it, you tend to like more intense movies. People who are into action movies want more action and people who are into romance movies want more romance or whatever it is <laughs> uh, that, that, that builds up there. So that sort of intensity you know, and people who are new to it often find that like it's too much. They find that uh, uncomfortable in, in whatever it is. And then the last one is specialized knowledge. And this is that does enjoying this thing require you to know stuff that you wouldn't just know in your ordinary life otherwise? So I'm mentioning like the art house movies. Like a part of the reason I find those so boring is that they're very often what makes them interesting commentaries on other movies or, you know, this other movie did this kind of filming technique. And here we're seeing what happens if we use that filming technique in a new way. Well, I, you don't know about the other movie. You don't know what the hell that filming technique is. That's not going to be interesting to you or baseball, right? You have to know a lot about what's going on. Like you have to know who the players are. Baseball seems simple, but it's not. Uh-huh. People who like baseball tend to be people who know a lot about baseball. And like my son knew more about baseball. He was sort of into it for a time. And I went to a game with him and he would explain like, oh, this is this batter, right? And he's coming up and this is this pitcher and this is like the history and this is how this person's going to do. And, you know, he knows all the individuals and it makes it much more interesting. Whereas if you don't know any of that stuff, it's really tedious. No offense, baseball fans out there. So it's this combination of how subtle is something? You know, is this wine, does it have a lot of flavors that are you have to really know to taste the little delicate differences? You know, how intense also is it? Um, and something can be subtle and intense at the same time, even like a wine right, can have like some very intense flavors and at the same time, some very subtle flavors. And you've got to be able to taste the subtle ones behind the really intense ones, right? So it makes it even more challenging, right? So subtlety, intensity, 
complexity and then, you know, esoteric specialized knowledge about that particular thing that you wouldn't normally have. And mm -hmm. you can get more specialized knowledge by learning about something. Um, and you can get the other stuff, the subtlety, that's mostly practice. So that's why if you listen to music, it'll start to make sense to you after you've heard it a couple of times. And if you don't believe me, just think about what happens with that, with any song. The first time you hear it, you like it a little bit. And then each time you hear it, you like it more and more um, until it gets to a point where you like it a bunch and then you get sick of it and then you like it less and less and less and then you really never want to hear it again. Mm -hmm. what's, what's happening is that each time you hear it, you're getting a little better at understanding that song. So if you think about like someone going down a ski run, right? There are mediocre skier and it's a moderately challenging ski run. You know, the first time they might fall sometimes and they're not very good at it. But each time they go down that ski run again, they get better at doing that particular ski run. Uh -huh. And so the first time they go down, they're not going to enjoy it very much because it's going to be scary and difficult. And maybe they get bruised or whatever. But as they get better, the balance between their their skills at doing that ski run and the challenges it presents get more in balance. And so they like it more and more. And then after a while, they've conquered it. It's easy for them. And then it gets boring and they like it less and less. That's exactly what's happening when you're listening to a song. And each time you hear it, you like it more and more. Your skills at listening to that song are getting a little bit better. And eventually you've sort of conquered it. You know everything there is to know about that song. You're not learning anything new. And then you start liking it less and less. Mm -hmm. What about the things that people like right away? Love at first sight. I'm like, oh, I love this song. It's great. Does, is, does that mean you're like destined to, you're going to get sick of it faster because it's it's already reached its peak? Yeah. I mean, sometimes, I mean, some songs are just like, there's something great about them and you, you really love them and they stay good for you. But a lot of times there is a difference between the songs that you like when you first hear them um they are really enjoyable but the things that make the reason they're enjoyable is that they're kind of simple so it's like again if we use the ski run example right you go down a ski run and you like really enjoy it the first time you go down it it's because your skills are already at the level of that ski run right and so it's not so hard for you and if you uh, go down it a whole bunch of more times, you're going to quickly start to get bored of it because already it wasn't that hard to begin with. And so there isn't that much more to learn. And the same with the song. Now, what they used to do or what they still do, but it's a little less effective now, is when they put together a CD, they'll intentionally put on that CD some songs that are going to be the hits. And these are the songs that you like the first time you hear them because and they'll, they they get you they hook you really fast, but I bet if you think about your favorite CDs, if you have some, you will find that you bought the CD because of this song. If you listen to the CD, you know, lots of times, by the fiftieth time you're listening to that CD, the song you bought it for you're sick of, but there's some other songs on the CD that have grown on you. And now those are your favorites. Mm -hmm. And that's why 
if you talk to people who are fans of a musician, they'll almost always say, oh, the, the, the people who aren't real fans, they don't know this musician. They love this hit song. But the people who are real fans, we know that the great songs are these other songs. <laughs> um, because those are the ones that were a little more complicated, required a little more practice to get to know them and grew slowly, but then provide a longer, richer return. Yeah. Yeah, when you said that, I was just like, oh, I know exactly an album. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> There's things that I always answer every, uh, ask everyone. Sure. How do you define fun? Obviously like flow's part of it, but is there any other part that you feel like is part of fun? Mm -hmm. I would say that flow is the biggest part, but the other part might be your positive attitude because I do think there are, are, are opportunities that we have to find things fun and we miss those opportunities because we come at them with a negative attitude. So, you know, like if you are playing a video game, the tasks, the, the challenges are stupid most of the time. You know, it's just a video game. And there are things like, you know, put the circle into this box or, you know, find three colors in a row or whatever the heck it is that your challenge is. It's a ridiculous thing. But you voluntarily say, yeah, I'm going to do this and it's going to be fun. But when you're doing the dishes, you don't take that same attitude. When you're doing the dishes, you're like, oh, I don't want to do the dishes. Someone else, the person who made this mess should do the dishes. I don't want, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. But if you just said, you know what, I'm going to treat this like a game. You know, it's, it's just a task. There are challenges. I have skills. I'm going to try and do a good job. I'm going to focus on the daily activity. Let it take my concentration. I'm going to enjoy it. Have a positive attitude about it. You can find a lot of things to be fun. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on. Professor Ahuvia. Uh, thank you so much for being on. Where can everyone find your book and uh, connect with you on social media? Yeah, so the book is called The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. And you can find it at most bookstores, certainly any of the online retailers, you can find it. Uh, a friend of mine once said it would be Whovia to remember Ahuvia. So... <laughs> If you if you uh, remember the name Ahuvia, A-H-U-V-I-A, it's phonetic, you can put it in, you can find it anywhere. I also have a website called thethingsweelove.com. It's pretty easy to find. And there you can sign up for my blog. If you're really interested, I've got a blog with Psychology Today. And uh, I'd be happy to send you that. That sounds great. Thank you so much for being on. Sure. Thank you for having me. And uh, wonderful podcast. Thank you. Uh, nice to get a chance to talk to your listeners. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks. You too. Thanks. Bye now. Bye.